Macworld Podcast number 42, June 21st, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Saruz Faravar. We have a really great show for you today. We're going to be covering security. And if you've seen this issue of Macworld, uh, the July 2006 issue, you'll know that we've got a great cover feature uh, called Protect Your Mac. And there's a very lengthy article in it written by no less than four Macworld contributors who are going to provide all kinds of tips and suggestions for how to keep your Mac safe and secure. Uh, everyone probably knows that there aren't very many viruses and worms and trojans and other malware associated for the Mac as compared to on the Windows side. I'm looking at the article right now, and it says, according to research done by Sophos, a maker of antivirus software, at press time, there were only four known OS X viruses compared with roughly 80,000 on Windows. So, you know, thank your lucky stars that you do have a Mac and that you don't generally have to worry about those kinds of things. This feature will take you through some of the uh, other known problems that are out there. Before we get into that, I just wanted to say thank you again for everyone who's been sending in audio comments. We played the last round of them uh, last show, uh, but I'm pretty much out of giveaway items at this point. So if you guys want one, you know, I'll tell you what I have left and you can see if you want it. But uh, otherwise, you're just going to have to wait for the next round of giveaways. Also, um, one last tip. There was an audio comment that came in from Nicholas in Switzerland. Uh, if you could please send me that comment again, but without the reverb and without the background music, that would be really helpful. And in the future, for everyone who's going to be sending in audio comments, again, please send those in the clear uh, without any kind of audio effects or music or anything like that. Uh, appreciate the creativity, but it just makes it a little bit easier to listen to. So thanks for that. So, um, we are just going to forge ahead into upward and onward into uh, this security article. So, for the show today, we're going to be checking in with uh, Macworld contributor Glenn Fleischman. He is a freelance technology journalist. He writes for The Economist, The New York Times, and many others. He also keeps a blog at Wi-Fi Networking News, and he was one of the authors for this Protect Your Mac feature. And so now we're going to cut to an interview that I did with Glenn Fleischman right now. All right, Glenn, um, it's a pleasure to hear from you once again. We last talked, I believe, on the podcast in one of our earlier podcasts, in podcast number one, I think, on Bluetooth. I think I was number one, yeah. I think you were. So welcome back. It's been Thank too you. long. Um, we're here to talk about uh, your article in the July 2006 issue of Macworld, uh, How to Protect Your Mac. And you had some interesting tidbits and suggestions for people as to how to provide uh, good network security, good email security, and good IM security. Uh, before we delve into that, I just wanted to ask you if, there, if you could maybe clear up some misconceptions or myths that people might have about why their Mac is or isn't secure. Well, sure. I mean, on the, you know, I've, I've specialized, I think, on more on the network side, and uh, and I think the article does a great job, that, that long feature does a great job in, in talking about kind of all the external risks one can have. And, uh, and my part of that was it's not necessarily that your Mac is vulnerable. And a lot of people feel like their Macs are totally invulnerable, that they're not subject to Windows viruses, and thus there's never going to be a problem. And I think there's other tips in the section that talk about 
why that's not a good attitude to have. But mine particularly, I have a really, there's a really big security hole which affects all computers that use wireless communications. And that's just that you may be able to protect the data on your computer. You might have a firewall or you've got all external services and Apple Share and everything else turned off. So your computer is impregnable, impregnable in the right way. But as soon as data leaves your computer, that's really the choke point. That's the problem um, of you know, data passing across a local network through some intermediate network out to the larger internet and then back at the other end of the process to whatever the destination is. And, and that's really what I was focusing on because that, that remains a big area of risk and misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But so you, you, as I mentioned before, you run uh, Wi-Fi networking news, and you're using Wi-Fi all the time, both at home, in your office, in cafes, in airports probably. Um, what is something simple that people can do who, wanna, who wa- are concerned about keeping their data secure as it travels unencrypted over public Wi-Fi uh, to protect themselves? Well, uh, you know, the biggest thing you can do um, in a public place is to use a virtual private network. And it used to be that that was expensive. Uh, it used to cost, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars to set up a server. You had to be a corporation. And it's gradually trickled down to the point where you could essentially, if you're, if you're technically sophisticated enough, you can set up a VPN on your own uh, for no cost whatsoever. And what a VPN does is it's, um, it's kind of two components. There's a piece of software that's built into Mac OS X uh, version uh, 10.3 and later. There's kind of a rudimentary version in 10.2. Um, but as long as you're using Panther or Tiger, it's very easy to set up. And that client software talks to a VPN server. And what they do is they establish a connection between them using very strong encryption that packages all of the data leaving your computer until it reaches the server where it becomes decrypted. And the same thing happens in reverse. What VPN looks like on your Mac once you set it up and you initiate this connection is it looks like a, a fake network device. So your Mac actually, instead of using its you know airport interface to send data, uses the VPN interface, which routes it into this encrypted tunnel, and then it goes out over the physical medium, whether it's airport, uh, Wi-Fi, or um, Ethernet, or even a dial-up modem. And um, so I try to always use a VPN or recommend it, you know, and so you could set it up yourself if you're technically minded enough, but there's a number of services now that, you know, I call rent a VPN service, where for anywhere from a few dollars a month to 10 or $15, depending on precisely the features you want, there's at least four companies that uh, have Mac support or have Mac software they can provide for you that allow you to use the, you know, encryption that's as strong as uh, government grade or, or high level corporation security. So that's not, I mean, for a few bucks a month, that sounds like something that most people would be willing to part with for peace of mind of, you know, not having anything encrypted when in public, using public Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's the easiest way to do it because, and, and I think it's, it stems from, I, I think people would be willing to spend that money if they really understood what's at risk. And this has been something, uh, you know, uh, Macworld's uh, contributing editor, Adam Engst, and I have written books about this, and we've talked about this for years, is, is what's the level of risk you're exposing yourself to? And we have different ideas about how paranoid is paranoid, but when you're, you know, so at home, you know, what level of encryption do you put on your home network for Wi-Fi? How much do you secure resources? That's debatable depending on where you live and what your interests are. But when you're, you walk into a Starbucks or a, you know, a small coffee shop and they've got free Wi-Fi, well, by default, anything that you send and receive is being sent in the clear uh, readily interceptable, and the only exception to that are certain protocols that are designed to be secure. So, if you go to a bank website that uses SSL, you uh, 
uh, which is a secure sockets layer, um, if you if you visit that bank site, well, it's using strong encryption between your browser and the bank's server. And there's still ways that that connection can actually be interfered with, but um, it's a less of an issue than a lot of the other methods by which um, people could just grab your FTP password, your email password, the contents of any email you're sending, the contents of any web session you do in the clear, any other protocols you might be using to transfer data over the internet. Those are all by default in the clear unless you've taken steps to secure and encrypt them. Now, but I guess one probably common counter argument that's out there is that, well, okay, you know, people say that the stuff is in the clear, but in order for that to happen, you'd have to have somebody there who is actively packet sniffing, actively looking for data as it's coming across the network. And most probably, you know, maybe in a Starbucks type scenario, it's a bit different, but most probably that's not going to happen. So do you say, I mean, is it sort of the argument like, okay, well, you get car insurance because even though you're probably not going to, you know, get into an accident, you'll want it the one time that you do. I think it's it's partly that, but I, I think, yeah, because you never know if someone's sniffing or not. That's actually the big problem with Wi-Fi interception is there's no, um, there's no integrity for each piece of data that goes through that lets you know whether it's been tampered with uh, because it can be done entirely passively, this, this sniff, sniffing. So if you're in a coffee shop and nobody else is on a computer, what are the odds that someone's sniffing? Zero. And, you know, ostensibly we trust the coffee shop enough. I mean, that's another issue, whether you trust the venue you're at, that they have nobody on staff who would do this, they have nobody from outside who would try to tap in, that they've got a good connection to their ISP, that their ISP is well run. So there's other risk factors there as well. But in general, I'd say if you're the only person in a shop using a laptop, your odds are pretty good. But here's where it gets more complicated is that because, um, especially with higher powered, newer Wi-Fi gateways, the, you know, Apple hasn't released one like this, but it surely will, you know, maybe by next year, the range of Wi-Fi is going to double or triple uh, from, you know, in just the diameter and the, the coverage area will go up by some order of magnitude um, with something called 802.11n, the next um, new version of that. And you know, this is already true with some gateways today. The signal stretches so far. You could have somebody who lives in an apartment nearby who bought a high-gain antenna, and they're a hacker or something like that, or they just do this for interest, and they could just be gathering all the data from a coffee shop across the street or all the coffee shops on their block. Now, again, I don't know how realistic that is. I think it's more likely that there's more venues these days in which you have, you know, we walk, when uh, you were driving through Seattle recently, we went to a coffee shop, and there were seven or eight people sitting there with laptops open on an unsecured network. Now, are any of them running a program like EtherCap in the background? Very unlikely. But but again, it's there's no way to know. So the more laptops there are, the higher signal strength that's coming out from Wi-Fi gateways, the more likely it is that your information is being disseminated in a form that you don't want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about people who use, I mean, you were talking about email passwords uh, in the clear. What about people who use uh, web services like Hotmail or Gmail or something like that? That's a great question because really if, if the web service is secured, you're in great shape. And what's interesting with most of the free email services, they don't actually secure their websites. Like um, sometimes you have to pay more for that. Like Yahoo has a classic case where you can uh, go to Yahoo's and I haven't checked this recently. I believe this may still be the case. They've just launched a new, um, they went to beta for their uh, new uh, webmail. But it used to be the case, at least, that you'd go to log in for any Yahoo service. And it would say, do you want to log in securely or not? But you'd first have already typed in your username and password, and you'd click secure login. And what that would do is it would send that username and password over a secure link to Yahoo, 
confirm it, but they would redirect you back to a regular connection. So your password would be protected, but not the contents of your session. There's even something more insidious, which is, and it's a real problem for bank sites. Uh, my, my local credit union, which is a great, huge one here in Washington State, uh, they actually make this mistake, and I've urged them to change it. If you have, uh, if the starting place to log in for a secure website is a regular plain HTTP site, you know, no lock, no blue line, nothing showing that you're on a secured site, there's a way for uh, ne'er-do-wells to create what's called an evil twin. It's, it's also called, I think another term is called farming with a PH at the beginning. And what you can do is create a fake website for a bank or, or a Yahoo or whomever. And when you're at a uh, hotspot, when somebody thinks they're connecting to Yahoo, you've actually intercepted, you've poisoned the local information, you've grabbed them to this non-secure Yahoo page, and when they submit the login information, it's actually going to someone's own, uh, you know, to this uh, villain's own uh, computer where they grab the information, at which point they can sometimes then redirect you to the real Yahoo site, but they've already grabbed your username and password. And while this sounds like a stretch, the issue is actually there's prefabricated software you can get and use for free that's basically set up to do this. So it's, mm. it's not as far-fetched as it sounds. And so as long as you should, I, I would say if you're using a secure website, you should always be forced to do the login from a secure page because that's something that cannot be forged. Uh, uh, if you go to a secure web page and there's a problem where someone's trying to intercept that traffic, it'll actually, your web browser will warn you that the certificate's invalid. But if you started a plain web page to make a secure login, then you're sunk. Huh. So all of this stuff is, uh, I mean, kind of, you know, can be, I think, a little bit daunting, particularly for mm -hmm. people who haven't been worried about, you know, Wi-Fi security or haven't been worried about uh, these types of, of issues and VPNs and proxies and all of this stuff. Is there something that, you know, sort of a, a step one, if you will, that where people could, you know, check out to make sure that their, that their bank or their email is secure or, um, you know, something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the first step, and, and this is actually writing the article, made me check my own bank site, was if you, um, you know, at your home or business where you're on a link you're not concerned about, go to the sites, the secure sites that you normally use and see if it's a regular web page. If it says HTTP colon slash slash, there's no S for secure after the HTTP part and you don't see a lock and so forth, when you go to the login page, then that's a security hold. And, and um, there are a number of different security agencies and experts who have who have condemned, or I shouldn't say condemned is probably too strong, but have, have basically said that that's the, the surest way to um, provide a hole for um, banks and other financial sites or private sites to let people in, uh, to let them fake a page that an unsuspecting user might encounter, whether at a Wi-Fi hotspot or, or online elsewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, in your article, there's an item about using secure chatting. Uh, and there's a way to make sure that iChat is uh, is secure so that your chatting information isn't sent in the clear. Can you take us through some of that? Sure. This is when well, there's really, I guess, um, there's multiple ways to do this now. And I, I focused on kind of the, the one that I think most Mac users will hit, which is if you're a Mac.com subscriber uh, and the people you want to talk to are Mac.com subscribers, the latest version of iChat AV 3.1 includes um, this encrypted method. So 
you know, so everybody you want to talk to, and I should say these are only for one-to-one conversations, not for group conversations. The other party has to has to have an account and also has to be using this latest version of the software. So what happens is you go into iChatAV, you go into preferences, you go to the account settings, and you can check a box that says, you know, use secure connection when available. Uh, the program does a little bit of computation to create a unique digital certificate for your computer based on your Mac.com login information. So it's a secure process of creating this unique certificate for you. And then after that, anytime you connect to somebody else who uh, to chat um, via IM, it doesn't work for audio or video, it's text only, uh, the iChat AV will automatically invoke this and create what is in effect uh, an SSL TLS, which is the, the secure end-to-end method, just like on the web. It'll create it between your two chat clients between your two copies of iChat AV. And, and this encryption is extremely strong, so it's considered essentially an unbreakable way to um, to conduct this kind of chat over the internet. Now you can also use um, PGP desktop uh, or home desktop 8 and uh, uh, includes support for this as well, but everyone has to be using PGP in that case. There's software from uh, Inigo that does it. So there's many options, but Mac.com seems like the most reasonable because it's kind of the easiest point of entry and there's other services that are included on top of being able to do secure chat. So it's maybe the cheapest way relatively, even though some of the other software is less expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, what about for people? So like myself, I you know use iChat occasionally, but more frequently I'm using a different IM client like Fire. I know there are other ones out there like Adium and, and so on. Is there a way to secure those types of chat sessions? Well, PGP Desktop Home 8 is the only product I'm aware of that, that is more generically able to capture uh, internet uh, instant messaging sessions from other clients. I'm not sure which the entire list it supports, but it's probably the only option there. You know, I should mention, this is a separate article that I uh, did for Macworld Online, but uh, we talked about the uh, you can actually secure audio conversations on the Mac now using voice over IP if you're using the right software. There's actually a way to encrypt audio, and it's, it's not directly supported by Apple. It won't work with iChat AV, but it will work with things like the Gizmo Project's uh, a client software at gizmo.com. And uh, again, both parties, whether Linux, Windows, or Mac users, have to have this software called uh, it's a, a secure a voice over IP client from uh, uh, Phil Zimmerman, the guy who invented PJP, PGP in the first place, called Zphone. That's Z-F-O-N-E, and uh, you have to search for it on Google because it has a long URL. Um, and if you, uh, if all the parties have this software, then you can actually conduct uh, government-grade encrypted conversations by voice over the Internet. So that's another alternative, even though it doesn't work yet with iChat AV. All right. Well, sounds like there are a lot of, uh, lot of tools out there for people to combat sort of malicious, as you said, ne'er, ne'er-well-to-dos or ne'er-to-do-wells um, that might be using information for malicious purposes. Yeah, and part of it is, it's the whole man in the middle issue, is sometimes it's an issue about, I'm at a Wi-Fi hotspot, I don't want someone else there to get to it, and other times it's an end-to-end issue. If you're concerned in any way that someone might be intercepting conversations, whether you're concerned about government interception, foreign government interception, um, other individuals, or just the general security of the internet, using anything that's end-to-end, say an intercept messaging encryption software that encrypts from me to the other person, it means that at no point between the two computers whether it's Wi-Fi or any other network at all on the Internet, can somebody uh, peek in and then be able to extract useful information. They might know that you're talking to somebody else and who you're talking to. They might be able to extract that, but they won't know anything about the contents of the communications. And and that's increasingly an issue for people in in business and just ordinary life. They want to know that their communications are private, and these are methods to ensure that kind of end-to-end security as well as the local security in a hotspot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
All right, Glenn. Well, it's always great to talk to you, and we thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. All right, we'll talk to you again soon. That was Glenn Fleischman, one of the co-authors of Protect Your Mac, the cover feature in the July 2006 issue of Macworld that you can also read at macworld.com. Now we're going to hear from one final audio comment that came in after I finished producing the last podcast. As I said before, we're out of giveaways, but I appreciate the audio comments nonetheless. So here's our audio comment. Hello, Saroos. My name is Fred Green, and I'm contacting you from just over the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County, California. As a longtime Mac evangelist, I do my very best to stay up to date on equipment, software, and pretty much all things Mac. But I do have a couple questions, though, that are currently baffling me. One podcast related and the other in regards to the iPod. Number one, currently I'm using Pro Tools to do all my audio production on my G5 Quad. I've been in radio and audio production since the 70s, and I love digital editing. What I can't figure out, though, is how in GarageBand to record a phone call using a VoIP, like Skype. Help me out on that one. Give me a suggestion. And my second question has been puzzling me for a while. I couldn't even find answers at this year's Macworld event in San Francisco, even though it was more of an iPod World event. Now, there seems to be a number of FM receivers available for the iPod. Personally, I want to listen to sports, and that's only on AM radio. So, are there any AM receivers for the iPod, and why not? Hi, Fred. It's Chris Breen from Macworld. First question, how to record voice calls via voice over IP? Well, the short answer is that you'll use GarageBand in post-production and use a different tool for recording the phone conversation. That different tool is Rogue Amoeba's $32 Audio Hijack Pro. Audio Hijack Pro allows you to capture any sound played through your Mac. The trick here is that you want to record not only the sound of your caller, but also your own voice. Audio Hijack Pro lets you do this unlike some other utilities. It's a slightly complicated procedure, so I won't detail how to do it here. Just go to rogueamoeba.com, click the support link, and search under Skype. You'll find a link to the Audio Hijack Pro manual, and in there you'll find details for doing this. Once you record the conversation in Audio Hijack Pro, then you'll export it as an audio file compatible with GarageBand, and then pull it into GarageBand just as you would any other digital audio file. Now to question two. Why no AM receivers for iPod? I'm completely with you on this. For my taste, I'm a better music programmer than any FM station's program manager, and I get much of the NPR material I listen to via podcast or through a radio service called Radio Time, so I don't really need an FM receiver for my iPod. But I like to listen to baseball, and by the way, go Giants, though Barry Bonds is a big fat cheater, and the occasional AM ranter. And I'd like to do that with my iPod, but I can't because of two issues, interference and antenna. AM radios are highly susceptible to electronic interference, and the proximity of the AM receiver to the iPod's innards would likely make for a noisy signal. FM receivers can use the iPod's earbud cable as an antenna, but AM doesn't work that way. It would require a special antenna. And designing an accessory that includes an AM antenna would be tough because the resulting device would either have a clunky old antenna hanging off of it somewhere, or you'd have to wrap the device in some discreet way with an antenna cable. So, honestly, if you want AM radio, the easiest way to go is to buy a cheap AM radio that you can shove in your pocket. And when you want to listen to a ball game, just put the iPod down and pick up the radio.
Well, that about takes care of the show. I uh, hope you've enjoyed learning about security and keeping your stuff encrypted and safe and keeping your Mac all nice and happy. Make sure and check out, of course, all of our websites that are available and are associated with Macworld.com that include macOS10hints.com, run by our very own Rob Griffiths, uh, as well as our new blogs, MacUser.com, and, of course, Macworld Gadget Box, available at gadgets.macworld.com. Also want to make sure that you check out on the Editor's Notes blog that's available at Macworld.com, the entry put forward by Philip Michaels, the editor of Macworld.com, where he asked essentially the same question that we just heard in the audio comments, which is why isn't there an AM radio for the iPod? He, of course, is a big fan of the Oakland A's and really wishes that he could have AM radio on his iPod on his commute home from work. So uh, we hope that there is a product that comes out soon uh, that allows people to listen to AM radio and baseball games and talk shows and everything else that comes over AM. So uh, that about wraps it up for me. You can always email me at cfaravar at macworld.com. Please, if you're going to send audio comments, make sure and attach them to that email. Um, of course, we would hope that you would leave comments in our forums. There's a little, you know, discuss this section down at the bottom of the podcast entry in the show notes. And we just like to keep the discussion flowing and keep the conversation going well after I sign off from the podcast. So um, please do send in audio comments, even though we don't have giveaways. I would love to hear more of you, and uh, it's just really fun for me. So that about does it, and uh, we'll catch you again next time right here on the Macworld Podcast. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast.